While the government tries to hide the consequences of inflation in their official statistics, Americans see and feel it every day. Join the Mises Institute in Tampa on February 17th for our first event of 2024. We'll discuss inflation, its causes, consequences, and cure. Tom DiLorenzo, Joe Salerno, and Patrick Newman will uncover the state's deceit to reveal inflation for what it really is. Deliberate debasement of the dollar to create winners and losers. Sign up now at Mises.org slash Tampa 2024 and use code ACTION24 for 15% off admission. What is the state? How does it preserve itself? What does it fear? These are the questions Murray Rothbard uncovers in his powerful book, Anatomy of the State. Thanks to our generous donors, the Mises Institute is offering a free copy of this Rothbard classic to Human Action Podcast listeners. Get your copy at Mises.org slash H-A-Pod free. That's H-A, like human action, pod free. This is the Human Action Podcast, where we debunk the economic, political, and even cultural myths of the days. Here's your host, Dr. Bob Murphy. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Human Action Podcast. Today, I'm going to be going solo, talking about the issue of capital gains. So as we're going to see in a moment, the specific controversy that recently erupted on Twitter, and by saying controversy erupted, I mean I stuck my chin out and some people took swings at me, is uh, having to do with the proposal to tax unrealized capital gains. But the reason I'm talking about it here on the Human Action Podcast is not so much about tax matters, but rather the issue of our capital gains income. I'm going to argue that they are, even though I'm not in favor of taxing them. Uh, but the issue, I think, is directly relevant to some of Ludwig Mises' most important insights regarding uh, calculation. Okay, you, you may have heard of the socialist calculation debate. Okay, well, kind of coming out of that context – Mises wrote a lot about what function do market prices serve and, you know, what's the role of accounting? What, wh- why does that help humans? What what role does it serve in the market economy? And his insights, I think, are uh, very crisp on this topic relative to a lot of other economists who, like, don't even know how to read a balance sheet, whereas Mises, I think, had some really penetrating insights. So that's why I think it's worth going through this. It's not directly about the particular issue of taxation. Now, having said all that, let me first prime this episode by talking a little bit about a discussion I had on a different podcast that I host with uh, David Schizer, who is the former dean of Columbia Law School. Okay, so a very distinguished guest we had on that show for that episode. And the issue is there's a Supreme Court case, I think it's called the Moore case, and it has to do with this issue of uh, taxing unrealized gains and, the, and whether that's constitutional or not. Okay, so that was the, the context for me having him on the show. And just let me walk you through some of the issues right now. And this is going to motivate when I show you in a moment um, some of these tweets. You'll understand the context better in case you don't already know some of this stuff. All right. So the issue right now, the way the tax code works in the United States 
if you buy shares of stock, you know, let's say you buy in it when the stock's selling at a hundred and then the stock goes up to 110, maybe several years later and you sell, you're not paying tax on the full 110. You're only paying tax on the, the gap, you know, the increment, the gain, right? So it's the capital gains tax. All right. But crucially, you only pay the tax once the gain is realized. Once you lock it in, in the interim, if you bought it in a hundred and it goes up to two hundred, but you're still holding it, even though you're up a hundred percent, and you know whatever your original investment was, that's how much money you've now you know made on it. You're not having to pay tax on that yet. It's only the moment when you sell and lock in the gain that's when you pay the tax. Okay, and there's lots of practical reasons for that. And in the more case. I think the plaintiffs are going to be arguing that, you know, just constitutionally, that's the only thing that could possibly make sense. Okay, so I'm not wading into tax discussions and so forth, or, you know, legal discussions about what the tax code ought to say and such. But as an economist, we're going to see in a minute where I'm going with this. Okay. So now what's interesting, what can happen is, let's say you're the founder of a business that takes off your cost basis in the shares of the stock of your own company is zero. Or, you know, maybe you put in a little bit of capital and I count that or something, but you know, you're, you founded a company in your garage in the 1970s. And then decades later, you're one of the richest men in the world because it's, you know, Microsoft or Apple, that kind of thing. All right. What you can do is not sell any of that stock but instead to fund your lifestyle, what you do is you go to a bank and you pledge some shares of your stock as collateral. The bank gives you a loan and then you go out and buy your yachts and private jets and mansions and blah, blah, blah. And that's how you conduct your affairs. And so you have never technically sold your stock. And so you never get hit with a capital gains tax on it. And the money you borrow from a bank or you know, some other lender pledging those assets as collateral that's not taxable income. It's not net income. When you, when you borrow money, that's not net income, right? That you, you borrow a million dollars pledging some of your stock as the collateral. Yep, a million dollars goes into your checking account, but at the same time, your liabilities go up by a million. That you, you owe the bank or whoever lent it to you a million dollars more than you did the moment before the loan kicked in, right? So your net worth hasn't changed. You've just changed the composition of your assets and liabilities, but you're still uh, financially in the same position. Okay. So that's not taxable either. So you're going through life, living large in a sense, you know, by taking out liens against this company you founded, you know, maybe you pay yourself a nominal salary and yep, you go ahead and pay your income tax and social security and Medicare on, uh, on the, the salary you pay yourself. But in the grand scheme, when you're worth $30 billion because you have an X percent share in this company you started in the 70s in your garage, the nominal salary you pay yourself is peanuts compared to that. That's the idea. Okay. Now you might think, okay, fine, but at some point, whatever you end up doing with the stock, you know, the, the chickens are going to come home to roost. No, because when you pass it on to your heirs, there's what's called the step up in basis. And so if the stock is, you know, trading at 800, when you die and give it to your heirs and they inherit it, 
the basis now to them is the 800. It's not the zero or the, you know, five or whatever from when you founded it in your garage. It's the basis is for them. How much, what was the market price of the shares of stock when you inherited them? And so then if it goes from 800 to 810 and they sell some, they're paying capital gains on the, the 10, but they're not paying it on the 800. Okay. So that's the way the system works right now. And there's a, a, a motto or a slogan that's been developed to just explain this strategy called hold, borrow, die, right? It's not just for founders. Like this principle obviously extends. That's just a particularly extreme case. You know, you're, you're a, a hedge fund manager and you buy a bunch of assets and things and they're going up over time and you just hold them. And then again, if you need cash, you just borrow against those assets, pledging them as collateral and then you die. And then they get passed on to your beneficiaries and the basis gets adjusted. So hold, borrow, die. That's the, that's the slogan. Beyond that element, um, David Schizer told me another element of it is that what you can do, because you can also imagine besides just needing to finance expenditures, you know, like you want to live, what's the point of being a multi-billionaire if you can't have some fun? Beyond that, though, you might want to diversify yourself, okay? So uh, you know, as you're, you're founding a business and maybe early on you want to maintain a large percentage of ownership just kind of to show confidence and, you know, have your other investors be happy with it and think you're confidently at the helm, but maybe over time you want to, you know, other things equal, maybe you don't want to own 80% of the company and have, you know, 99.9% .9 of your own personal net worth just tied up in shares of this one company. That's kind of risky, right? So maybe you want to diversify. But again, oops, if you sell, then you, you have to pay the realized capital gains, but you don't need to. Instead, what you can do is something like, um, let's say the share price right now is 100 and you normally you would want to sell off 20% of your holdings, let's say. And again, if you, if you had gotten in real early, if you were an investor or if you're a founder and got in basically at zero, the ground floor, geez, if I sold 20% of, of my holdings in this, I would have to pay the capital gains on that full appreciation for the, you know, at least the 20% that I'm planning on selling. So instead of doing that, what you can do is you can sort of hedge yourself with, uh, call and put options. So specifically you could do something like, okay, right now it's at a hundred. I want to basically take away the risk of this stock price moving up or down too much. And so maybe what I'll do is I'll buy a, a bunch of put options covering, you know, like the 20% of my holdings that I want to, that normally I would have sold were it not for tax considerations. So I'll buy, uh, put options on that portion, those shares with a strike price of 95, right? So the put option gives me the right, but not the obligation to sell at 95. So it's, it's putting a floor beneath the value of my holdings. And then maybe I can buy or sorry, sell the same, you know, similar number of call options with a strike price of 115. So I'm giving outsiders the right, but not the obligation to buy those shares of stock from me at a price of 115. So that's capping the gain. So now whatever happens, my losses or gains on that 20% sliver of my holdings is locked in. That if it drops below, you know, if it drops down to 80, 
then, oops, I lost, you know, the 100 to the ace. I lost the 20 from that component. But then the value of my put options goes up and it offsets it. So really, I only effectively lost the $5 drop, you know, times the number of shares. And then the other way around, if it goes up, I enjoy the appreciation up to 115. And then beyond that, the people that I sold the call options to, they effectively come in and they can buy at 115, right? And I could just, I can just settle with cash either way. It's not that I actually have to um, buy more or deliver the, ori the original stock. You can just settle up with getting cash with the people with the put in the calls. Okay. So that's another thing. And there's tax issues on those particular derivatives, but you get the idea. So again, um, Shizzer's point was there's a lots of ways you can engage in financial tax planning so that you're technically not having to sell your shares of stock and have to pay the realized capital gains. All right. So that's where we stand in terms of how things work right now. And so in that context, now let me show you a tweet recently that was making the rounds from these people, the Americans for tax fairness. Hey, who couldn't be against that? Or who could be against that? I should say, who couldn't be for that? This is breaking billionaires and centi-millionaires. So that's a new one. Maybe they invented that to exclude uh, Bernie Sanders. Billionaires and centi-millionaires held $8.5 trillion in untaxed, unrealized capital gains in 2022. Unrealized gains are the largest source of income for the ultra-rich but they're completely untaxed under our tax code, dot, dot, dot. Okay. And then it was a, a tweet thread. All right. And so as you can imagine, boatloads of libertarian and conservative types on Twitter went nuts. And that's how this came on my radar. It's not that I was following this account. I never heard of these people before, but um, lots of people who I do follow were retweeting this thing with the commentary and they didn't have nice things to say about it. And then I, you know, went to the actual tweet here and you can see, I'll just flash it. We've redacted the identities of the people so that, you know, we're not trying to shine a light on anyone in particular, but I just want to give you a sense of what I'm talking about and wh why do I feel like, Oh, it seems like um, my side on this issue does not appreciate certain aspects of, economic theory when it comes to the definition of income. Okay. So here there's one, two, three, four, five, six people in a row that are all beside themselves. But the specific thing, the, you know, the reason I grabbed this screenshot and what motivated me to say, you know, I should go ahead and do an episode on this is that each of these people actually says something that I don't think is right in terms of economic theory. All right. So in case, um, you're listening just to the audio version of this. I'll just read some of this. If unrealized gains are income, then ungrown crops are food, which you must also believe since communists always seem to run out of it anyway. There's nothing to tax since that's money doesn't physically exist. It's just values of stock. Unrealized gain is not taxable. It doesn't exist because it's unrealized. It's not a hard math problem. What income cannot spend an unrealized capital gain until it becomes a realized capital gain? If you want to see a meltdown in our country, you know, communist dystopia, then by all means tax unrealized gains. As long as you're doing imaginary stuff, can we claim unrealized losses as we think up an unrealized dependence we plan to have? Absolutely ludicrous. Blah, 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 blah. 
Because unrealized means not real. Are you going to then let these same people write off losses when values depreciate? Okay, so as you can see, the, the running theme there was that a capital gain or an unrealized capital gain is not income. And then and there were other people too, again, PhDs, some PhD economists who I saw flatly saying in response to that tweet, unrealized capital gains are not income. One guy even said, by definition, an unrealized capital gain is not income. Okay, so that's why I have a B in my bonnet about this stuff is that I'm saying, no, it's it's standard in economics that all capital gains are types of income or, or as a form of income. And I'm going to, in a minute here, folks, read you some quotes from Mises and Rothbard just to show you this isn't my idiosyncratic take. It's not that I learned some heresy in grad school and <laughs> am now trying to uh, jam it down your throat or something. This is standard stuff in terms of economic theory, all right? Big picture, of course, I am not for taxing unrealized gains. I'm not for taxing realized capital gains. I don't think uh, if you get paid $50,000 in salary from your employer, I don't think that should be taxed. But my argument would not be to say, this is crazy. You want to tax somebody's salary? Salary's not income, right? I wouldn't say that because salary clearly is a form of income right? So I would use a different argument. So likewise here, I am saying, uh, especially given the context of what I've talked about here, where there are lots of very wealthy people who effectively get by with paying very little in income tax using the strategies that we talked about, that's what the context is here. And so to say in response to that, well, no, they don't even have the cash. How could they possibly pay when no, these people are buying yachts and stuff because they go to a bank and they pledge it as clear. All right, so you get the idea. Also, just on the narrow point before I forget, when people are saying, oh, are you going to give me a negative? Yes, that's the way it would work if they did it properly. Just like with realized capital gain, you know, you buy a bunch of stocks. If you sell some at a loss, that also gets carried forward, right? So, you know, forget the unrealized, we're just in terms of realized. Right, so yeah, if you lose money on a stock, you you bought it at a hundred, and then it went down to ninety, and you sold, that loss does offset your gains. And even if in a particular year your losses outweigh your gains, you can carry that loss forward. Right, that's when Donald Trump's tax returns got leaked a couple of years ago. That was one of the things too, where people were flipping out about that, and you know, I was just making a point. Well, well, no, it's if you have a big loss in a certain year that swamps your gains, of course you can carry that forward. If you couldn't. That would be unfair, right? Okay, so that's um, that. That's how that works. And again, my point here is not to be in favor of taxing unrealized gains. My point here is to say that capital gains are a form of income in terms of standard economic theory, whether they're realized or not. And so I want to just go through now and try to get you to understand why that's the case. That you know that makes sense. That's not some communist <laughs> plot to take your money or to take your money that you don't yet have. Okay, um, so first, why don't we before I dive into you know me? Oh, actually, here, let me show you this quote. This is from Investopedia. 
Okay, recording unrealized gains. Unrealized gains are recorded differently depending on the type of security. Securities that are held to maturity are not recorded in financial statements, but the company, blah, blah, blah. And then the part that I'm highlighting, securities that are held for trading are recorded on the balance sheet at their fair value, and the unrealized gains and losses are recorded on the income statement. Okay, so when I was getting into these arguments on social media about this stuff, people were flatly telling me things like, well, no no accountant would ever book an unrealized capital gain as, as income. And y- yes, they would, right? <laughs> so I'm showing you, this isn't some nutty theory I'm advancing. This is standard stuff in accounting, at least for certain types of assets that, yeah, the standard corporate accounting would say, even if the firm is holding an asset still, it hasn't sold it. If it bought in at 100 and now the asset's worth 200, at some point in the reporting on that, as the asset appreciated, that would have been booked as income to the firm. And I'll, I'll circle back to this point at the end of this episode to drive home why that's a good thing. Okay, you, we want that to happen. It's, it's not some mysterious um, trick or something. Okay, let me now, to again, just try to give some backup here to my point before I try to explain it intuitively. Here is Ludwig von Mises. This is page 261 from the Scholar's Edition of Human Action. He says, The differentiation of means and ends thus becomes a differentiation of acquisition and consumption, of business and household, of trading funds and of household goods. The whole complex of goods destined for acquisition is evaluated in money terms, and this sum, the capital, is the starting point of economic calculation. The immediate end of acquisitive action is to increase or, at least, to preserve the capital. That amount which can be consumed within a definite period without lowering the capital is called income. Okay, so here what's going on is Mises is defining income. I'll read that sentence again. That amount which can be consumed within a definite period without lowering the capital is called income. All right. I don't have the quote here for you, but Friedrich Hayek in the pure theory of capital at one point does a similar thing as what Mises just did. He first is, he's talking about like a stock of capital goods and like, what's the financial value? What's the market value of them? And then he's saying that what you want to do as a steward of that in terms of, you know, business practice, you want to at least maintain the value of your capital stock, right? So the individual goods come and go, right? There's machinery, they wear away and so forth. But you want to say the overall market value and you can, you know, adjust for inflation if, you know, if that's if that's an issue with the currency you're using. But the idea is you want to maintain at least the value of that capital stock, okay? You, ideally, you'd even want to grow it. But the point is you want to just know, you know, I want to maintain that. And so then income is a derivative concept. We're saying, what is income? That's saying, oh, given that I start the period with this amount of capital measured in money terms, how much can I consume over the course of the period so that when I end the period, I haven't eaten any of my capital? Okay, so again, the the, the equation is, or the the relation is that income is defined as how much consumption can you enjoy during a given time period such that the capital value 
which is a stock, you know, variable at the end of the period is the same as it was at the beginning. So you haven't impaired your future ability to produce things and to consume. That's the idea. All right. And then Mises goes on. If consumption exceeds the income available, the difference is called capital consumption. If the income available is greater than the amount consumed, the difference is called saving. Among the main tasks of economic calculation are those of establishing the magnitudes of income, saving, and capital consumption. Okay, so you, again, you see that's why there's the intimate relationship and what may have first seemed odd to you. Like, why are you talking about income? Like, shouldn't you just be counting like all the different ways money's coming in the door? And no, that's not how he's doing it. He's saying, first of all, at you know, the start of the period, let's figure out what is your how much capital do you have at your command, or if it's a particular business enterprise, you know, devoted to that business, there's a laundromat, and you can tally up all the, you know, the market value of all the assets and subtract the market value of the liabilities, and that's the total amount of capital, the amount of equity in that enterprise. And then you know, a year goes by and the accountants come in at the end and give the report to the owner. And the idea is they do the similar calculation, what, you know, what happened to the capital value. And then if it went up by a certain amount, you know, that was the income during the period. And so in principle, you could have siphoned that away and spent it on consumption. You know, cons consumption means something that's not intended for, for, future output. It's not going to generate you revenue down the road. You're consuming it. It's gone. Okay. And so that when you understand that purpose here, those connections, then Mises argue it makes more sense. So in a sense, you know, your income is telling you like, you want to know, am I living above or below my means? Maybe that's the way to put it. So you can't just look at consumption, right? Cause you, you might be living above your means. And so, Oh yeah, look at my lifestyle. I'm going out to dinner all the time. I drive a fancy car, live in a nice house. But if year after year, you're eroding the value of your capital, you're living above your means, right? And so Mises would say you're consuming more than your income each year. Because if you just consumed your income, your capital stock would stay constant. And if you live below your means so that your capital is growing over time, that's what we call saving, where your consumption is less than your income. Okay, so that's the relationship of all these things. Uh, just to give another example, here's Murray Rothbard from Man, Economy, and State. I don't have the page number. I didn't grab it on this uh, screenshot. He's got a little section here called the capital gains problem. He says, much discussion has raged over the question, are capital gains income? It seems evident that they are. Indeed, capital gain is one of the leading forms of income. In fact, capital gain is the same as profit. Okay. So in fairness, you know, Mises and Rothbard and those quotes I just gave, they didn't distinguish between unrealized and realized capital gains. But in fairness to me, I'm going to say right, because, you know, I think it's evident once you, if you get more into the context and understand the mentality of what they're doing, th that distinction is irrelevant for what they're talking about. In, in any event, they said, uh, you know, the, the burden of proof would be on <laughs> the person who still thinks I'm wrong on this to show that, oh, no, they just meant unreal, right? Because they just flatly said, you know, Mises defined the change in capital. He didn't say in terms of realized capital changes. He just said, you know, capital. And there, Rothbard, he said a capital gain. He didn't 
specify, oh, here I mean a realized capital gain, okay? And again, if you get into the logic of what they're doing, it's crystal clear that they have to mean all capital gains, not just realized capital gains. Okay. Another element in all this, perhaps, just to give a little bit more context, and then I'll just try to jump into some intuitive examples to illustrate these principles. If you go back at least to Bumbavark and what he called the interest problem, for him, the way he framed it was like this. He said, you know, as an economic theorist, we're trying to explain interest, and there were lots of different theories floating around at the time. And Bumbavark first systematically classified all the different theories. All right, sort of like a biologist, you know, putting each one into its own genus and whatnot. And then after, you know, when he did that, Bumbavrick then systematically critiqued every type of interest theory that had been offered up until him. And then he gave what he thought was at long last, finally, you know, the correct explanation of this market phenomenon. And so the way he framed the issue, the, the task that Bumbavrick said the economist had to explain was, why is it that someone who has command over a sum of capital without lifting a finger or contributing other natural resources can effortlessly enjoy a flow of consumption over time and that capital doesn't diminish. And then Bumbavrick ultimately, so he said that's what the interest problem is. That's what you have to explain as a theorist or as an economist to say, you know, where does interest come from? Okay. And his answer was, and nowadays, people would, in the auditors would say time preference, but you know, more to unpack it, Bumbavrick specifically said present goods are more valuable than future goods. And so that's why if you have a bunch of goods right now that have a market value of 1000 and let's say the interest rate is 10%, you can consume $100 worth of goods or services over the course of the year, and then starting next year, the goods you have, and again, the individual goods may come and go, like stuff wears out, you got to replace it, whatever. But if you are a wise steward of it, you can typically day in and day out in the market economy, you know, put your capital to work and enjoy a flow of consumption without impairing its ability to keep doing that forever. That's the idea. That's what he was trying to explain. And, you know, and there were different, possible explanation, you might think, oh, it's because it's productive. Like, like if you own farmland, it might make sense to, oh yeah, if I own this plot of farmland over time, it keeps shooting crops out. And so, yeah, every year I can eat a bunch of tomatoes and, you know, and the land physically can make tomatoes next year too. So what's the issue? I just enjoy perpetually. And there's issues with that, that will know, you know, how come the market value right now of that land isn't bid up fully reflecting all the future harvests of tomatoes. Right. So it's, I won't get into it here because that's, that it's a real esoteric issue and that it like underlies the whole Austrian approach to capital and interest theory. All right. But that, what that is specifically, it's Bumbavar's critique of what's called the naive productivity theory. Okay. So Bumbavar showed that no, it's not as simplistic as that. There's something else going on. In order for any of these explanations to work, it has to be the case that 
present goods have a higher market value than comparable future goods. So present tomatoes are worth more than tomatoes that aren't available until 10 years from now. And if you have that element, then it does make sense. That's why, you know, you pay a certain amount for the land now, even though it's going to offer a perpetual, potentially infinite flow of tomatoes. Okay. And so more generally, you got a thousand dollars worth of goods right now that are devoted to productive purposes. And effectively what you're doing, you, you can think of it this way is when the market rate of interest is 10%, you're selling the present goods now for claims to $1,100 of future goods. And, that, and they trade at that ratio because present goods are worth more than future goods. So that's why you get more if you're willing to trade present units for an airtight claim to future units. And so given that that's how it works, that you could transform your $1,000 of goods right now into $1,100 of goods a year from now, once I open up that possibility, now you can understand why. Okay, so if I just want to tread water, I just want to go, I want to transfer economically $1,000 of goods right now that I have in hand into $1,000 a year from now. Well, now I have extra to play with that I can, I can consume. And so then that difference is the interest income you've earned on the capital. Okay. So that's, I'm hoping to tying all together so you can see the relationship and why economists went down this path when they were defining income. All right, let me now, as I transition from sort of this abstract appeals to authority, among other things, right? <laughs> I really haven't tried to explain it down in, in brass tacks. I've just uh, basically told you, well, Hayek and Mises and Rothbard said so, so, and Bumbavark, so, you, you know, come on, it's got to be right, and Investopedia. Let me now just, just try to get it so you can see why it makes sense and if nothing else, to see why economists went down this path, because if you're trying to come up with systematic definitions of basic fundamental economic categories, um, even if in certain cases it doesn't line up with like everyday usage, you can still see why the economist is going to be a stickler and say, no, we kind of have to define it this way because if we don't, then you get in all these issues over here, right? So that's kind of what I'm trying to get across to you right now. So I'm not so much trying to, if, if you start out this episode thinking an unrealized capital gain, no, that's not income the same way me getting money from my employer deposited into my checking account is income. If you start out that way, it's, my goal is not to make you think, oh yeah, I was wrong. Thanks, Bob. That's not what I'm doing here. I just want you to understand why I'm not being ludicrous for insisting that no, in terms of economic theory, folks, an unrealized capital gain is income. And so, uh, you know, just keep that in mind here. Like you, you can't so much <laughs> roll your eyes at these other people and say, that's ridiculous. How can they get away with proposing to tax an unrealized capital gain since we all know that's not income? I, I want you to get to see why a lot of people would say, what are, you, what are you talking about? Standard economic theory says it is. Okay. So to motivate this now, this transition into the more lighthearted, intuitive part of the episode, let me tell a joke. It's not a great joke, but uh, it's something that I read in, uh, what the heck was that? Reader's Digest years ago. I was a kid. And the joke went like this. It said, um, 
pride is what you feel when your uh, 10-year-old says that he earned $400 at the garage sale. Terror is what you feel when you realize that your car is missing. Okay, so everyone gets the joke. What happens there is that your 10-year-old apparently sold the car to somebody for $400. Okay, so that's the joke. But, you know, underlying it, as we're going to see, that that's going to go into uh, the, these issues. All right, let me, let me give you a different example here. There's three different ways somebody might acquire an extra $100. Method number one is he goes and works a shift at his job and the boss pays him $100 in cash. Okay. Method number two, he goes to an ATM, he sticks his credit card in, he types it in, types in the pen and requests a cash advance of $100. And $100 bill shoots out of the machine. That's the second way he could get $100. The third way is he sells some stocks. You know, he, he logs into his brokerage account and, you know, let's say he's got a bunch of stocks, shares of stock that right now have a market price of $20 and he sells five shares. And so, you know, I'm not worried about uh, the the cut that the brokerage gets and whatever, but let's just forget about that for a second. He gets an extra $100 now that he can play with. All right, so three separate ways somebody could acquire an extra $100. And so my what I want to claim is of those three possible techniques, only the first is net income, where you traded your labor hours in exchange for $100 from your employer. Yep, that's income. And we all agree, you know, if that's not income, then nothing is. You know, you go, a worker goes and works and then gets paid. That's clearly income. Economists think so. The man on the streets thinks so. And so does the IRS, right? But I'm saying number two and three, even though those are other ways you could get an extra $100, economists would not say that's income and accountants wouldn't either. And I just want you to think through like, well, why is that? Because in the second example, where you used your credit card to get a cash advance, yep, you've got an extra $100, but notice to get it now, there's a lien against you. Your, your liabilities went up by 100. You got $100 in cash, but at the same time, you now owe $100 to the credit card company. And of course, that's going to roll over at a not very attractive interest rate. But even putting aside the finance charge, just the pure transaction at the moment of consummation you didn't get any wealthier. You just, your assets went up by $100 and your liabilities went up by $100 at the moment of the transaction. And so that's the sense in which you didn't earn any net income. All right, you, you couldn't consume more without impairing your capital, right? Whereas in the first example, when you, when you work a shift and then your boss gives you $100, you could go spend that $100 and your capital hasn't gone down. When I say spend, I mean blow at the movies and you know taking your date out or something. I don't mean you know buying assets, right? You could consume that hundred dollars that you got from your boss, 
and your financial position would not be worse than it was before you did the shift at your job. And so that's why we would say, yep, that $100 was net income to you. Okay. The third example where you sold stocks, here your liabilities didn't go up, but your asset, your other assets went down. So all you're really doing when you sell $100 worth of stocks in exchange for $100 in cash or you know, money, that's not an income. You've just rearranged the composition of your assets. You couldn't go consume more now without impairing your capital because your capital hasn't changed as a result of you just selling the stocks. Okay? So that's, I'm just trying to drive home so you understand people when they were flipping out about that tweet and were saying, well, you don't even have the money. So, you know, income has to be, I'm trying to show you in general, no, it's not the case that income means incoming money, even though, you know, presumably that's where the term originally came from etymologically. Okay. Let me now, so, so what I've, I've here shown that there's clearly cases where cash could be coming in the door and at least I'm hoping I'm making it plausible why you could see why maybe we shouldn't classify that as income. Now let me flip it around. Let me try to show you examples where cash doesn't come in the door and yet economically, I think it's crystal clear that that has to be classified as income. Otherwise, you know, you're going to get into knots. Okay. So three different examples. Well, the first one's the same. First example is, again, guy goes to his job and he works. Let, let's say it's a deli. Okay. He goes and works a shift, gets paid a hundred dollars. Second example, guy goes into the same job, works his shift. And then at the end of the sh shift, you know, the boss comes out and he's about to give the guy a hundred dollars. And the guy says, you know what? My wife asked me to uh, load up on deli meat. And so how about I'll, I'll just grab a hundred dollars worth of meat and, you know, and we'll just do it that way. Right. So you don't have to give me the cash and then I'm just going to give you the cash right back in two minutes. Just pay me directly in terms of the, the meat. Okay. In practice, like at an actual store, they might not do that because they need to have transactions, but you can imagine like if someone's working for a farmer. And at the end of the shift, the farmer just says, yeah, here, you can take this amount of eggs and take this milk and blah, blah, blah. You know, you could imagine a farmer doing it, like hiring local people to help. And especially like back in the day, if, if money wasn't plentiful, you know, maybe that's what they would do. They would just pay them in kind. Okay. Yep. Come here, work for a day and we'll give you food to take home to your family. Okay. Like maybe during the Great Depression or something that was common. Okay. But in any event, just to keep the analysis comparable, assume it's the same job. The guy works at a deli. The first guy, you know, actually, yeah, th three guys that are all working the same shift. And the first guy, again, gets paid $100 in cash. Second guy doing the same type of work. You know, uh, the boss is about to give him 100 and he says, no, no, no. Let me just take it out in terms of meats. And the guy says, fine, go ahead, and, and maybe cheeses. And then the third worker, again, they're all interchangeable workers as far as the boss is concerned, does the same shift. The boss comes out, 
but they remember that, oh, that worker had the week before taken an advance on his paycheck. All right, so he actually got uh, $98 in cash the week before. And the boss just said, we'll settle up next week. Okay, that will say you owe me $100 next week when you come in for that, that next shift. Okay, so I'm giving you, you know, so there's implicit interest rate in there. That I'm giving you 98 Next week, you're going to pay me back 100 And the guy said, great, yeah, because he really needed the money the week before. Okay, so now he's worked a shift, and the boss comes up and says, okay, here, here's the IOU where you said you owed me $100, you know, due today. And I guess, yep. He says, okay, we're going to just rip it up now because you just worked, and I owe you $100. And so that's going to extinguish this debt. And there we go. Thank you. Okay. Loans cleared. You don't owe me anything anymore. All right. So I want to say in those three cases, which of any of those do you think is income? So I think we all agree. The first one where the guy works the shift, gets $100 in cash, that's clearly $100 in income. But I want to argue guy two and guy three also earned $100 in income. even though they didn't technically get cash. Like guy number two got $100 worth of consumption goods and his capital didn't change any. And guy number three, that's not as obvious, but what happened is he actually reduced his debt by $100 and so his capital went up by $100. And so that's the sense in which he earned net income is because his, his consumption was the same, right? He didn't vomit up food that he had eaten or, <laughs> you know, return a motorcycle or something he'd purchased, right? So his consumption didn't change in the period, and yet his financial wealth went up by $100, namely because a lien against him, a debt, got extinguished, all right? If you wanted to, to really make it crystal, you could say he could go to somebody else and borrow $100 from somebody else and then use that to go consume $100 worth of goods, and his financial position is unchanged, right? Because he extinguished the first debt and just swapped it out for a new debt if you, if you want to do it that way. But either way, you can see using that definition of what's income, that third guy also earned $100, which makes sense, right? They're all doing comparable work from the boss's point of view. He's paying them all $100 each. It's just the form that payment takes is different. Okay, so I, again, I'm going to argue. So you see, stepping back, you, you see what I'm trying to do here? I'm trying to show you the flow of actual money is neither necessary nor sufficient for income to have been earned. And I'm hoping those simple examples drive that home. Incidentally, if, if you were going to push and say, like, oh, no, only if you get paid in cash is that actually income, right? And, then, you know, and that was one of the major critiques that I saw on Twitter, at least, of that tweet talking about, you know, hey, we should tax unrealized capital gains. We are saying, well, no, the people don't have cash. So how could they? There's no income. And so if that's what you were going to argue, well, then I, I was saying if that goes through, if that's a valid objection, then that opens up a whole new strategy that, like, people working for car dealerships the boss could just say, you know, anytime you need a new car, we'll just keep track on paper of how much I owe you in terms of salary. 
and then you buy the car from us and we'll just give you the car. You know, and then we'll, you know, we'll keep tab, but I won't actually hand you over money that you then turn around and buy the car with. And so if we're saying, you know, being paid in kind doesn't count as income, you know, you could do that. All right. So again, just try to show that there would be lots of implications if you really thought that, no, there's this rule in taxation where if you don't have the money coming in, then clearly that can't possibly be income because how could you pay tax on it, right? By the way, just to be clear, that is a valid concern in general just for pragmatic reasons and just, you know, there's there's cases where somebody might, uh, you know, have a business and if it takes off and then there's a, a capital appreciate or a, yeah, capital gain, market value appreciation, and they owe a big tax bill, Right, maybe because they can't convince outside lenders or there's other issues, maybe it'd be hard for them to borrow the money to pay the tax bill, and they could be forced to sell, right? So that, that it even happens, like, too, with an inheritance taxes and things that some kids inherit a house or the family farm or whatever, and because the tax bill is so big, they can't, you know, they, ha they have to break up the asset, right? So there's, I'm not saying that's a completely irrelevant problem, but I'm just saying, in general, it it's not really the uh, a, a good argument to say if cash is not coming in, then clearly that can't be considered as income. Because again, of the cases I went through, and then also, like I say, if that were the rule, there would be a lot of uh, maneuvering in order for people to minimize how much cash they got. You still see remnants of that right now. Like, so for example if an employer pays for your health insurance within limits, that's not taxable income to you, the employee. Whereas if they just gave you all cash and then you use some of that to go buy your own health insurance, you'd be paying the premiums with after-tax dollars. So that's part of the reason that uh, so many Americans' health insurance is tied to their employer because there's there's tax considerations. Okay, so I'm, I'm saying you you do see some of this in the real world depending on the rules. But in general, that's the issue. Okay, let me now just wind up here by giving uh, an example to try to explain, you know, what, what's the point of this, right? Like what, what purpose does it serve? So this example is a bit contrived, but I want to drive home, you know, how is it that accounting properly guides action, right? So that's really the fundamental thing here. Um, one of the issues I noticed when I was arguing on Twitter with people about this is I got the sense a lot of them thought the only reason you need to report income is for the tax authorities, that this is a whole, you know, the whole enterprise of calculating what was my income in the first quarter versus second quarter. And, you know, if I bought a shares of stock at this time at 100, and then it went up to 300 over the course of several decades. Who cares, you know, when that gain is imputed to me? You know, the issue is just, yeah, when I sell it, then I actually you know, realize the gain, and then I have some money, and if the government wants to stick a gun in my belly and take some of it, so be it. You know, I don't like it. I still think it's theft, but fair enough. Whereas, you know, what? They, they're going to just make up some number about how much I gained even before I see the money and try to... I understand that, but my concern is that's leading you into believing 
accounting serves no purpose except to satisfy the IRS. And that's that's incorrect. And also in an Austrian from the Austrian tradition, you're completely neglecting some of the most important contributions that Mises made to economic theory to explain how is it that accounting actually is one of the most important things uh, that we have, right? So Mises likes to quote Goethe's observation that double entry bookkeeping is one of the finest inventions of the human mind. I think that's the quote. Okay. And, and, and Mises wasn't saying that flippantly. He meant it sincerely. So all the stuff about the critique of socialism and why does capitalism work? It's because decision makers, you know, in a decentralized market process where there's not a group of planners in charge of the whole economy, but things are broken down into smaller subunits and particular individuals have discretionary power over what a given entity does, whether we're just talking about a household or a giant corporation, but there's private ownership and they use cost accounting in order to guide action that entrepreneurs need to know at the end of a time period, were we profitable or not? And if we were profitable, that's a signal that we're using society's scarce resources in ways that consumers like. And if we're suffering losses, that's a signal we're doing something wrong, at least vis-a-vis the preferences of the consumers. All right. And so I'm saying once you realize that no accounting serves a definite purpose, then you do want it to be the case that you, uh, as assets appreciate that are in the possession of the entity, that that's showing up on the income statement. You want to know, do we earn income or not in a given period? It's not just, well, once we sell the thing, then, you know, the dust will settle and we'll, and everything will get wrecked that that might lead you to make the wrong decision. Okay, so let me just give you an example. This is a bit contrived, but I'm just trying to drive the the point home. So imagine a major airline that at the beginning of the year, for whatever reason, they, they, they bulk up on a lot of purchases of jet fuel. So they have a bunch of, you know, their warehouses are just full of, you know, various depots spread around the country near the major hubs and such that, that, that their airline uses. And they really bulk up on on jet fuel. And then uh, a suitcase nuke goes off in Iran. And, you know, uh uh-oh, people worry about World War III breaking out over there in the Middle East. And the price of crude oil goes, you know, from $60 a barrel up to $600 a barrel the next day. So I'm saying in that environment, what's going to happen? The accountants looking at, um, you know, the the balance sheet of the airline could say, okay, we're going to, you know, mark up the value of this jet fuel that we hold. All right, I'm just making up numbers. Suppose originally there was $100 million worth of jet fuel that they had, you know, in their physical possession when the news broke. And so right now they have... Um, what I say went up by a factor of 10. And so now they have a billion dollars, right? What I say, hundred million going to a billion. I think that's what I said. Okay. So that $900 million change was purely due to, you know, the world price jumping up. Assume the price of jet fuel changed proportionally to what crude oil does. Okay. So in that environment, 
you know, uh, what would happen. So here I confess, I don't know exactly what accounting techniques, you know, a major what Delta uses or something. I'm just trying to show you in principle why you would want the accounting to reflect very specifically what happened to guide action. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and Mises says this too, when he's talking about accounting and, and human action and elsewhere, he says, I'm putting words in his mouth and basically there's certain practices in accounting. They do like, you know, valuing inventory at book cost, um, because you don't want to give too much discretion to the entrepreneur, right? Like you wouldn't want him to be able to come in and say, Oh no, no, it looks like we're losing money. And, but I don't want to report that to the shareholders. Cause I have this great idea and I'm trust me once people catch on to what I'm going to do, the stuff in our warehouse right now is going to go through the roof in terms of market value. So don't value it at cost value it at, you know, this crazy number I'm giving you right now. And, and tell that to our shareholder, right? You don't want to be able to do that, right? There's certain generally accepted rules of accounting and you got to rely on a lot of objective criteria in order to, you know, keep it honest, okay? So th- there is that element involved. But so here again, with the airline example, I'm just trying to motivate you to get you to see the kind of thing I have in mind. So if if we were to say that, no, the, the books shouldn't reflect that all and just, yeah, what'll happen is, um you know, maybe, maybe you could, as you burn the fuel, uh, it'll be, it'll be a higher, you know, in terms of cost of goods sold, you know, maybe you'll catch it there and you'll do it that way and so forth. And the, the issue with that is maybe, what should I say? Doing the accounting the original way and just saying, no, we'll settle up in the long run, you know, once we burn through this fuel, literally, and then start buying new fuel, it all, it all reckon out, is that maybe they shouldn't continue operations the same way. Maybe when the price of fuel skyrockets like that, what the airline should do is um, drastically cut back on the number of flights they're offering and go online and start looking around and making, you know, taking bids to see maybe, you know, that, that amount of jet fuel that we stocked up on, maybe other airlines right now who weren't so well stocked, maybe now they're scrambling and they need jet fuel. And so maybe we'll sell it to them. All right. Again, like if, if the airline in question just happened to have really loaded up and its competitors didn't the moment that news struck, they're relatively well endowed. And so, you know, the, the whole industry is going to use a lot less fuel during the course of the year, you know, because the price is so much higher and they're going to, you know, cut back their flights and uh, ticket prices are going to go way up and the public's going to fly less because now everything's so much more expensive. Okay. So I'm just saying part of what would you would want to happen in that case is the individual airline that was sitting on all that fuel up front now economizes on that. And so part of how the accounting could help make that transparent so that they can make the proper decisions, again, whether they literally do it in terms of the shareholder reports or whether they kind of do it on the side and say, yeah, this is what the gap accounting rules say we got to write down, but here's really what's going on. I mean, they might (laughs) do it that way. Again, I don't know exactly the uh, particulars, but clearly for them to make the right decision, they would have to realize, yeah, where we made it, we made a bunch of income. 
we made $900 million, boom, the moment that news struck, our firm had that gain. And now if we were to proceed and just keep running, so what you wouldn't want to do, put it this way, is you wouldn't want to keep running flights as if the price of fuel were the book cost, right? Because in principle, you could think, well, no, they can afford to keep running flights, even though their competitors are going to have to cut way back, right? Because the competitors who didn't, you know, who only had a few days worth of fuel and you know on hand, and now they have to go back into the market when the price has skyrocketed. So now the competitors are going to have to cut back flights to charge a lot more per ticket just to break even. And so I'm saying the, the original company, you might think, oh, well, they can go ahead and just keep charging their original ticket prices because, hey, they got the fuel at the old price. So they can afford to do it, right? But no, there's this, economically, that would be crazy. They would be losing money on that decision on the margin because strictly speaking, what would have happened is they would have gained $900 million immediately in this one-shot appreciation and then they would have been losing money if they kept running all the flights the way they were before, such as they would have frittered away that $900 million gain. So yeah, over the course of the year, their performance would look comparable to that of all their rivals. It wouldn't have looked on paper like they lost money if you just did the accounting without having uh, unrealized gains flowing into the income statement. But if instead you did it, you know, week by week, you could show, wow, in that first week we had a $900 million gain. And then, you know, going forward, what do we do? Well, now that the inventory is 900 million or is, is worth a billion dollars, you wouldn't want to then, you know, run a flight where you're not even making an up from the tickets in terms of the, the fuel that you're burning. Okay. So you'd, you'd want to, you know, adjust upward on the balance sheet the value of that inventory. Okay. So that's just, you know, again, it's a bit contrived, but I'm just trying to show you that, uh, why for the firm to make the right decisions, it actually would be important that it would realize, Oh, if the goods we're holding, we haven't yet sold them suddenly jump up in market price. The firm needs to know that when it's, it's deciding what to do, because it might change its operations accordingly. And so to the extent that you think market prices serve any role and that accounting gives feedback and guidance beyond just showing the tax authorities, this is how much we owe you, you can see why, yeah, it definitely does matter if, if the assets in your control go up in market value even before you sell them, you need to know that information. And so that's why economically we say, yep, that's when the income was technically earned. Okay, just one last example um, that might make it clearer. Imagine there's like some big investment bank and it's got a bunch of different funds. Okay, and you know, different individuals are managing the different funds. You know, one's like a sovereign wealth fund, and you know, one's invested in commodities, and this one invests in fixed income, and this one is a, a tech stock. Blah blah blah. Right, and they each buy a bunch of stuff, and then they're holding it over time. Well, in terms of the the books of the of the overall investment bank, you would want to know how are each of these funds performing. You would want to know at the end of the year how much income did the commodities fund earn us? How much income did the fixed income fund earn us? 
and it would be kind of useless if they all reported back and said, well, we're still sitting on all the things we bought at the beginning of the year, so we don't know. You know, we'll get back to you when we sell, and then then we'll tell that's, you know, what if you're going to hold on to it for five years? You're just going to sit around for five years and have no clue what's going on in the company? But no, obviously what they do is they benchmark it to market prices and they periodically update and say, okay, did we earn a profit or a loss on this? Even if you're still holding the assets. And then what they're doing is the unrealized capital gains or losses are being flowed through to the profit and loss statement in a situation like that. Okay. And again, that, makes perfect sense. That's exactly what you would need to happen if you're the CEO or the shareholders overlooking this whole enterprise where there's lots of stuff going on. You can't keep track of it all individually. And so the way you do is you break it up into smaller components and say, what's the profitability of that sector? And so to say what's its profitability, you need to know how much net income did they earn? And if they're still sitting on the assets, you know, maybe they want to sit on the assets. Maybe that's a good thing. Another example, a classic going back to uh, like Bombavik and Irving Fisher when they were trying to work out the the elementary principles behind capital and interest. Something like you got a somebody who owns a forest, and it's it grows at a certain rate, you know, physically, and then you know, but there's also the market price of the lumber, and there's the interest rate, and so then the, you have to decide when is the optimal time to cut. Right? When you first plant the sapling and it grows, you know, you probably don't want to chop the tree down when it's two years old. But on the other hand, you know, do you just let the tree grow? You got to cut at some point. And so when do you do that? And it has to do with, you know, interest rates come into play and it has to matter. Da, da, da. And so uh, basically the answer is when it gets to the point where the market is, you're just maintaining it in your possession, you're not selling it, right? So you haven't realized the gain. If the value of that forest as it ages keeps increasing more than if you were to chop it down, sell it for lumber, and then you know get the the cash and then invest that at the going rate of interest. Right? That that's how you make the decision as to do I just let my financial capital in the form of all these trees right now keep appreciating in that form, or do I sell the trees? and get into something else, right? And again, you need to know what's the going rate of interest to make that decision. But again, to answer a question like that, clearly you would have to be able to say, okay, last year, how much income did I earn on my trees? To compare it with how much income could I have earned if I instead had that financial capital in treasuries? And so it would be kind of useless if your accountants told you, well, what do you mean? You didn't earn any income on those trees because we didn't sell them. They're just sitting there. You know, money doesn't grow on trees. Ha ha. Right. That, that would be useless to you. Say, no, what I mean is what was the market value if we had sold, by the way, you don't have to cut them down to, you could just like literally sell the whole operation to somebody else. And then that person could decide, do we want to cut the trees down or not? Right. But you want to say, what's the market value of this forest that I own right now on January 1st? And then what's the market value of it on December 31st? And then that difference has shown me what was the percentage growth rate on that asset. And then that difference, you could net out and say that was my net income on that asset during the course of the year. Okay. And again, 
the fact that you didn't actually have money coming in the door is irrelevant for that kind of calculation to guide your decision. You need to know how much income did that asset earn me? How much did it contribute to my overall financial capital holdings? That's one way of looking at it too. And so, yeah, if something, you know, when you go and work a job and you trade your labor hours in exchange for cash, that increases your financial capital. You've got money coming in and, you know, assuming you're not like physically wearing down your body so that you need to go to the hospital or something and have medical bills, then that's the sense in which, um, you know, we say that you're not reducing your capital stock by, by conventional labor. And so the money you get paid for that is income. As we saw earlier too, if they gave you cars, that would be income too. That would be, you know, that would go into your financial holdings. Okay. So likewise, you own a forest and it grows in value. You own some stocks and it grows in value. The issue is how much are these things contributing to your overall net wealth? And then that's what income is, right? So income is a flow variable. Wealth is a stock variable or capital is a stock variable. And that's how they're related. Okay. That's a good place to wrap up. So again, I am fundamentally, totally, philosophically, pragmatically opposed to taxing unrealized capital gains. I'm opposed to taxing realized capital gains. I'm opposed to taxing wages. But if you ask me, are wages income? I'm going to say yes. And if you ask me, are unrealized capital gains income? I'm going to say, well, in economics, yes. Okay. Thanks, everybody, for your attention. See you next time. Check back next week for a new episode of the Human Action Podcast. In the meantime, you can find more content like this on Mises.org.